This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing. Hello and welcome back to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. So as we move into 2019, two big elections could shake up the rest of the year. In May, the European elections could see an unprecedented popular surge. So what would this mean for the European Union? And back home, we're looking at a potential general election and Corbyn's chances at government have never looked better. We discuss what both of these things would mean for Europe and Britain. And finally, is it ever okay to call a woman a girl? In May, Europe will go to the polls, and as Frederick Erickson writes in this week's cover, we could see an unprecedented populist surge. Across the continent, politicians like Marine Le Pen and parties like Germany's AFD are receiving far more support, and what's more, are now maturing enough to play the political game. So, is the EU about to be fundamentally changed by the political outsiders? I'm joined by Frederick Erickson, economist and writer, and Charles Grant, director of the Centre for European Reform, to discuss. So, Frederick, can you start by telling us why the upcoming elections are going to be quite so significant? So, first of all, many of the nationalist and populist parties in in Europe are probably going to do much better this time than they have done in past elections. We've seen in many national elections around Europe that many of these parties are I mean, they they are polling very well in some countries that even get into government. And given the fact that many voters in the past have seen European Parliament election as an opportunity to protest and to express an opinion which which is sort of more on the extreme rather than on the centrist side of the political argument, we are probably going to find a parliament after the election in May, which is going to have a much larger group of nationalists and populists. If We have to see if they're going to find a way to work together in Parliament, but they're certainly going to be bigger. The nationalists and the populists are also fracturing the traditional centre-left and the centre-right, and both the right and the left have had huge problems in finding a way to not survive, but at least to prosper in a sort of a political climate that increasingly finds that the main type of debate is between, on the one side, broader liberalism and on the other side, a broader form of nationalism. Charles, in Frederick's piece, he talks about these moderate populists and how they've learned the virtue of patience and the art of compromise and that that might be helpful in the European Parliament elections. I mean, is that something that you recognise? Yes. I mean, first of all, I agree with a lot of what Frederick says. I don't think the European elections will be a a big game changer in the way the EU works. They will rather bring home what a lot of people see already, which is that the era of ever closer union has stopped. There isn't going to be, in my view, significant European integration in the sense of the treaties we had like Lisbon, Maastricht, Amsterdam, Nice treaties leading to a transfer of more powers to the EU. There isn't going to be that treaty-based integration. Because if there was, there'd have to be a unanimous treaty agreed by everybody, which is possible. Then there'd have to be referendums in four or five countries. And we can all guess what the results of some of those referendums will be. Then the European elections will highlight the great strength of populist anti-EU forces. Although, as Frederick says rightly in his article, it's really only British Eurosceptics who want to leave the EU. Most Eurosceptics in most countries want to give you a good kicking and bash it, but they change it from within. On your particular question about the more moderate moderate stance of some populist parties. I think this is very interesting. I myself, like many people who wish the EU well, have been very worried to see Mr Salvini emerging as the most powerful man in Italy, 
hostile to letting immigrants into Italy, hostile to European integration, hostile to the kinds of changes that the Eurozone might need to make it more effective. But actually, he's become awfully moderate and reasonable in the last few months. And I think there is at least, a, at least on, on the question of the budget deficit and Italy breaking the EU's budget rules, he's agreed to have a smaller budget than he at first asked for. It is at least possible that we'll see Italy, which is the most alarming country in terms of the strength of its populist government, following the example of Greece, whereby Syriza won the elections in Greece a few years back, committed to a kind of hard-left Marxist economic policy. But once they faced the difficulties of office, they evolved into a moderate centre-left party, replacing PASOK in Greece. And it may well be that in Italy we see Mr Salvini's league replacing Berlusconi's centre-right, and we see the five-star movement, which is a more left-wing populist force, replacing the traditional PD, the Democratic Party. I'm not saying that's certain, but there seems to be some grounds for believing that if you give these populists power, they become quite moderate and reasonable faced with the challenges of office. And Frederick, I mean, Charles just said that the, they want to get in power and then give the EU a kicking rather than actually leave it. And you say in your piece that they want to reform it. But how are they going to reform it if they, if they can't really all work together? And I mean, are there any signs that they might be willing to work together? I think the jury is still out on that question. You can find big differences between many of these populist national parties, but that after the election, we're going to see parties more inclined to try to find a common ground in the parliament in order to exercise power there, because now they are becoming so big that they actually have a chance to exercise power inside the European parliament. And given that opportunity for them, I think at least in some of these parties, you can clearly see that they are going in a direction of trying to work out a common agenda, which is going to fit Salvini, the national rally, is going to find common grounds together with the, the, the Nordic populists, many of the Eastern and Central European parties and leaders that are on, on basically the same, same side of the argument. So that may very well happen, but I think more generally what we find is that over the past five years and more so in, the, in recent years, there is a new type of maturity, political maturity in many of these parties. And it's partly an issue about they have, having become much larger in national polls and partly because as they are getting closer to having real power, they also find themselves in need of developing much more policy consistency, having better policy proposals to, to put forward. Charles, what about those on the other side? I mean, the people who do still want ever closer union. I mean, do you think there's a chance that they could still do better than expected? Not really, but I mean, I think let's distinguish between the sort of hardcore federalists who really want an ever closer union, who are rather thin and far between, except in the European Commission and one or two ministers and one or two governments, and then the sort of more moderate centre-left, centre-right politicians who are in charge in most countries who sort of believe Europe's a good thing but don't want to give it much more power than it has today. I, you see, one reason I don't expect a massive change after the European election is I think the the moderate parties in the European Parliament, that's the centre-right European People's Party, the centre-left, the part of the European Socialists, the Aldi Liberal Group, Macron's group, which is working with Aldi, and the Greens, is they will work together to make sure they can the EU can do its business. Legislation will pass because these, these moderate forces will work together as a centrist bloc, which is what they have done until now. But they have to work together more closely because they won't have so many seats as they have in the current parliament, Frederick's right. In the long run, that may not do the centre much good, but it'll certainly work for the next five years, I think. And, all, and all, another factor not to be forgotten is that at the moment there are today 
in the European Parliament three groupings which are to the right of the centre-right, one of which the British Conservatives sit. They've not managed to work together. They don't like each other. They, the leaders are, all want to be boss. They all want to be the leader. They've not, not managed to forge a single block in the European Parliament to, already, although there are three groups with, with, with a number of MEPs in each of them, and I'm not sure they'll do much better after the election. And just finally, Frederick, I mean, you talk in your piece also about the irony that we're starting to see the change that David Cameron asked for. I mean, do you think this new reformed EU would be a better option for Britain to remain in? Well, ironically, I think you can see greater similarity between sort of the the Cameron side of the argument and where sort of many people on the centre-right in Europe is right now in how they see the development of the European Union. The, the difference here is that those on the centre-right side and the centre-left side, and certainly the nationalists and the populists, they they don't like sort of to follow the UK way. They don't like to exit. And I think many of them are more sort of troubled about having been sort of in the same type of, of fold as, as British Eurosceptics have been in the past. They'd like to stay in the EU and they would like to reform the EU and and rather see sort of that the EU becomes a different type of political and constitutional animal than it is today. And it may be the case that if if these changes actually happens, that we end up with an EU that not just the Cameron wing of the argument, perhaps other more Eurosceptical Tory wings would find something they'd like to be part of as well. I mean, I think Frederick is absolutely right that the EU, with hindsight, should have given Cameron more of what he was asking for. The trouble was he asked for it too soon at the wrong moment. He did get something. He got it written into his famous document of February 2016 that ever closer union did not apply to Britain. But the trouble is that many countries don't share that vision. Mr Macron does share that vision. He wasn't around when Cameron was doing his renegotiation. But Macron has put forward a plan for a Europe of concentric circles with the Eurozone being the most integrated part and other bits of the other countries not join the Eurozone less integrated and a sort of third circle for countries like Britain and Ukraine and Turkey that don't want to join the full EU. But I think in the long run, Cameron was right. In the long run, Frederick is right that that is probably the way the EU will develop. But it's not going to happen in the very near future because it breaks too many shibboleths for too many people, particularly the Federalists and the Brussels Commission. But I think a more diverse, differentiated EU is certainly the way it's going to develop in the long run. Thank you, Frederick and Charles. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. Next, it's hard to think of a time when an opposition leader has had such a promising start to the year, says Katie Balls in this week's political column. With the Tories imploding and the Brexit clock ticking down, Jeremy Corbyn's chances at government have never looked better. But he has a habit of messing things up, so can the Labour leadership navigate the Brexit hurdles and make it into number 10? Katie joins me now, together with Connor Pope, Deputy Editor of Progress, a centre-left campaign group. So, Katie, you start by saying in your piece that it's hard to think of a time when an opposition leader has had such a good start to the year. Can you start by telling us why things are looking so good for Corbyn? Well, it's not so much anything that Labour is is doing as to what the Tories are doing or not doing in many respects. So this isn't suggesting that 
there are some things working in Labour's direction, but a lot of them are really the Tories' misfortune. So we have Theresa May, who narrowly survived a confidence vote. Over a third of her party voted against her. If you look outside the payroll vote, so the people who you know get paid money to be in government, um, a, a very high number of backbench MPs voted against her, we expect. It is a secret ballot. On top of that, the Tories have fallen out with the DEP, their confidence and supply partner. If they can't mend that relationship... And so far, it seems Theresa May is struggling to do that. They don't actually have a working majority in the Commons, so they can't get any legislation through. And then adding to all those things, Theresa May has to pass her withdrawal agreement, which is uh, the UK's way of exiting the EU, in about two weeks' time. And she could try and delay that again, but we are leaving in March unless something else happens. And as things stand, she doesn't have the numbers, she doesn't have a majority, and lots of Tory MPs plan to vote against her. So the chances of an election this year are fairly high. There's obviously reasons it might not happen, but even some cabinet ministers privately admit it now looks probable. And if we were to have an early election, the public don't really like voting when they don't need to. Um, fair enough, I think deep down we're all a bit like Brenda. And... When we get to that point, the cards would be in favour, stacked in favour of Labour, who had not brought that on. So really, it is, I would say, Labour's to lose if we do have an election this year, or even next year, you know, in the years to come, because the Tories are in such trouble, and I think they'll be blamed if that happens. Connor, what do you think? Could 2019 be Corbyn's year? Absolutely. I think, actually, what's really interesting about some of this is the fact that we are all presuming that Jeremy Corbyn is the favourite if we if we have another election, despite the fact that actually Labour is slightly behind in the polls and has been for a while. So I think that's a really interesting uh, aspect to all of this. And essentially what Jeremy Corbyn needs to do and the team around him need to do is work out exactly how he can be the insurgency candidate again. Because if you go into an election where you are the favourite but behind in the polls, then actually there is a complacency element within uh, Labour's voters. Uh, if you look at the local elections over the past couple of years with Corbyn as leader, the performance of Labour has been much smaller than it was in the 2017 general election. Even even the 2017 local elections, which happened just a few weeks before the general. So there is a already built into Corbyn's leadership a sense that actually some of our voters are maybe complacent isn't the quite word, but not always enthused. And so what Corbyn really needs to do is work out how to be an insurgent again, I think, because that played so well for him in 2017 from a personal point of view. I would say that actually uh, another referendum, a people's vote, with him being a kind of head of a left-leaning, genuinely left-leaning Remain campaign uh, that was then successful and leads to a general election might be the best way of approaching that. And you say that, I mean, obviously the members want that, but do you think that could be damaging electorally with the voters? Well, that is something that clearly the Labour leadership thinks. That's in Katie's uh, column as well, that they're worried about uh, specifically uh, swing seats in the Midlands that are leaning. Um, Obviously, I I can't completely dismiss that. I I think it's brilliant that the uh, kind of the left of the Labour Party has finally come around to focus groups and internal polling after being so opposed to them for so long. And it's clearly uh, that information that is feeding into uh, into their opinions on this. However, I think what Corbyn has proved over the past couple of years is that actually taking on people's economic unhappiness, which was a driver of Brexit, 
and dealing with that first and foremost is a better way of approaching this than actually sticking it all on a Brexit or no Brexit position. Um, and, you know, as I say, I think actually the bigger boost for him would come from being an insurgency candidate. And I think, frankly, at the moment, the biggest way of doing that is by being a, a Remain uh, supporter. Katie, okay, so you're talking obviously about John McDonnell and Diane Abbott being open to people's vote. I mean, is there a disagreement at the top of the party? I think within Corbyn's inner circle, there is agreement that the ideal scenario is a general election. I think when you get to the point of what happens if you don't get a general election, there starts to be a different order of preference in what you should do. And there are some people who do think a people's vote could be considered if you get to a point where you can't get to an early election um, and you want to you know, stop a no-deal Brexit or perhaps even stop Theresa May's deal. Uh, we know that Jeremy Corbyn is at loggerheads with the Labour membership on the EU. That often hasn't been a problem for him previously. I mean, he is a historic Eurosceptic. He is a Lexiteer. He wants to be free of the shackles of the EU for completely different reasons than Jacob Rees-Mogg does. But he likes the idea of using that to have you know, a radical reform of the economy um, one that aligned closer to socialist values. I think when it comes to his advisors, though, and those who are having decisions, there is a feeling that on top of not being with his ideology, it could just be bad politics to actively go for a second referendum. So I think if Labour were to eventually get behind a people's vote, it's something that the Labour membership tried to do at the conference and there is more Brexit fudge. It's not just the Tories who are guilty of it and they managed to get it. So basically the party have to keep a second referendum on the table as an option um, at some point, you know, as keep it as something they're not going to rule out. But I don't think, I think if were Jeremy Corbyn to go for that, it really would be once you've got so far down the line that maybe it was that or no deal Brexit or something because they are and you touch on those focus groups there is a concern that you are going to turn off lots of these Labour Leave voters and they could go to other parties I mean people often talk about UKIP and the threat to the Conservative Party lots of UKIP voters came from Labour and if it looks like Labour is playing games over Brexit I think there's a risk that they get accused of Brexit betrayal. Well, I mean, like the last election, obviously nobody thought Corbyn was going to do that mm. well and they were proven wrong. I mean, do you think there's a chance that Labour are now getting a bit too confident and actually the people are still quite wary of a Corbyn government? Absolutely. And there is a complete confidence within uh, within the Labour membership that Jeremy Corbyn will be the next Prime Minister. There is so little doubt in all of that. Um, and as I say, the, the fact that there is this already built-in level of kind of complacency within Labour's uh, voters makes me slightly concerned that that will not be heeded. However, on the other side of that, there is um, a kind of hardening, I think. The, the Labour Party is spending a, a phenomenal amount of money on a lot of new regional organisers uh, all around the country, so clearly they are taking very seriously the ground game and are upping that uh, massively, which is good news, but as I say, is very, very expensive. In terms of playing Brexit games, the most fascinating line, I thought, in Katie's article was that there are people around the Labour leadership who think that the best-case scenario here is that May's deal passes and then the DUP are so unhappy that it causes a no-confidence vote that they then win and it goes to an election. I think that's a really fascinating way of looking at it, like the fact that essentially they are so sanguine about Brexit happening and... uh, Obviously, the entire economic prospectus is based on the idea that austerity over the past eight years has been 
a political choice. And essentially, they seem to believe that their economic agenda would just simply not be uh, deterred by the fact that an economy might be crashing. Although I think the most fascinating element of all of this is they perhaps haven't quite thought through the dates. If May, May's deal does, by some you know, terrible miracle, pass, then and a, and a no-confidence vote comes very quickly after that, uh, then there'll be two weeks and then there's 25 working days, uh, which would mean the general election would either take place on March 7th or March 14th. Uh, the latter, for anyone who wants to get me a present or hack into my bank, bank account, happens to be my birthday. Um, <laughs> it's a treat. But, but that would that would leave <laughs> yeah, Jeremy. The Ides of March, the day after. <laughs> yeah, that would leave Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister on the Ides of March, but with two weeks left before the Brexit deadline. In that case, does he just go? Well, May's deal's already passed. Let's stick with it. Seems. But, yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to when exactly a general election would take place, you don't know when precisely this confidence motion would be tabled and a lot of it is trying to find the right time Mm. they're really reluctant to do it if they think you know that it's not going to win and we saw that before Christmas Um, and we've also seen this week Jeremy Corbyn on the news that there is this new poll showing seven out of ten Labour members want a second referendum we saw Jeremy Corbyn saying if the deal fails Theresa May should go and renegotiate now that annoys a lot of Labour members because they think, well, the deal falls, at least you should try and get this early election. And if not, we can start talking about people's vote. But I think ultimately the Labour position is that they accept the result of the referendum. They accept that you have to leave the EU and that's at odds with the membership. But what Jeremy Corbyn is trying to do is stop endorsing a Tory Brexit and also just buy time. So eventually you get to a point when you could do that confidence vote and perhaps win it. Um, I'm just finally, what about Remain voters? We were talking about UKIP voters then. I mean, if Labour don't support a second referendum or look like they're starting to kind of play too many games, I mean, could they start to turn on Labour? I think that is definitely a possibility. I think actually talking about this a bit much uh, within people who are uh, pro a people's vote does harden some uh, Corbyn supporters against it because they feel like they're being threatened somehow. Um, but I do think it's a genuine uh, possibility. The, the, the problem is, obviously, that uh, what are the alternatives? And frankly, the Liberal Democrats are still nowhere to be seen. This you know, kind of spectre of a new party, uh, I think, you know, looms large, but still doesn't feel like it's really going to happen. And frankly, even if it did, I don't think it would be particularly uh, successful. Um, I think, actually, the bigger picture here is not necessarily that it will harm Labour's electoral chances massively, but it might take the sheen off Jeremy Corbyn a little bit. And up until now, he has had this incredible Teflon quality with his supporters. And I don't think that this will actually drive people away from him, but it might cause people to actually, next time there is a problem, not give him the benefit of the doubt. I think that might be his bigger danger. Yeah, I think the Labour is a coalition of voters, you know, just as the Conservative Party is, but I think it's you look at those voters, there are Remain voters, there are Leave voters. And the calculation that's been made by some is that it is less risky to annoy Remain voters, given that we look how the Liberal Democrats fared in the 2017 SNF election, running on a pro-EU slate. They didn't do very well. I think they went, depending on the stats, you could say they even went back a bit and they didn't make the gains everyone had predicted. So I think that there is less of a fear that those voters are going to suddenly defect to the Lib Dems in the way that these voters in swing towns, places like Mansfield, where the Tories actually had a surprise win in the 2017 election, voted heavily to leave. Labour thinks it needs those voters in leave 
turns to get a majority. And I think the calculation, or at least what they're betting on, is the Remain voters in cities like London are not going to suddenly vote Tory because they've respected the referendum result. Katie and Connor, thanks very much. Looking for a new podcast to add to the mix? Then why not join me, Katie Balls, for Women With Balls, the Spectator's latest podcast series. In it, I'll be sitting down with the trailblazers of today to talk about their career goals and what makes them tick. So far, we've had Emma Barnett, and that's now available. Later this month, I'll be speaking to Liz Truss, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, as well as a host of other names. I do hope you'll join me. And you'll find us on Spectator Radio. He's brave. Partly brewer, big strong, big strong girl. <laughs> she's not, not weak, as they say in boxing. She's a woman, Quentin. No, old, she's not a girl. Um, she... That was journalist Quentin Letts being berated by comedian Joe Brand on Have I Got News For You. So, is it okay to call women girls? In this week's issue, Mark Mason, author of The Importance of Being Trivial, treads carefully through this minefield. He argues that all things considered, it's time to drop the label girls. But what should we call women instead? Mark joins me now, together with feminist writer Julie Bindle. So, Mark, what's your predicament? My predicament isn't a big one. It's not a major thing. It's just a curious little language thing I've noticed about the word girl. And having conversations with women, it's happened a few times with women in their 20s, who, you'll be, I, I happened once I was talking to a woman in her 20s about another woman in her 20s, and I referred to the other woman as a girl. I think I said she's a great girl or something. Or, and then sort of stopped myself and thought, no, hang on, there's something about the word girl that sounds demeaning. So stop myself. And actually, the woman on that occasion said, no, no, it's fine. I'm a self-identifying girl. It doesn't matter to me. But a few times I've started to feel uncomfortable. And then there was the episode of I Got News For You, the clip you've just played. And uh, Julia Hartley Brewer was referred to as a girl and Joe Brand saying, she's not a girl, she's a woman. OK, it struck me as a bit po-faced, and, but equally Joe Brand's someone trying to get either a, a laugh or a round of applause against someone like Quentin Letts. And of course, she's going to say that in that situation. And I thought, actually, there is something to it. It's the curious thing that girl is the name for the child female, an underage female. And the equivalent word with man is boy. But when you say that someone's a great man, you wouldn't say they're a great man because it sounds as though you were talking about Churchill or someone. So you tend to say, he's a great guy or he's a great bloke. And this is the problem. There are no female equivalents of guy or bloke. You either have to go for woman and make them sound like Florence Nightingale or there's girl, which can sound demeaning. And so that's the curious little problem I found myself with. Julie, what do you make of the term girl? It depends who's using it and in what circumstances. There are times when I absolutely bristle when I hear girl, um, which should be woman. One is when we describe women in the sex trade. So it's the girls are out tonight. It gives a kind of romantic, rosy kind of depiction of what is horrific. Um, And another is when a sexist uses it. So I use girl all the time. And although, you know, I'm a lesbian and my partner's a woman and most of our friends are women, we still talk about having a girl's night in or a girl's night out. I'll refer to women, for example, who are a particular friendship group as, oh, you know, the girls in Norfolk or... And sometimes I do use the term boys. For example, you know, I've got a very good friend who is a gay man uh, in a couple and I'll say, why don't we invite the boys over? Now, I would rather be called a girl by a patriarchal but very polite, well-meaning Tory 
than I would be called a woman by Owen Jones. <laughs> so it really does depend on delivery. And ultimately, uh, I prefer girl to lady. Oh, absolutely. Lady is a big problem. Lady's because, la- <laughs> In fact, it's, uh, the only place you see lady these days really are on the golf course, where it's the ladies' tee. And that tells you everything you need to know about the word lady, that the horrible people who run golf still well, use it. But even, you know, like sporting-wise, you, you, know, you just don't refer to ladies. Now, in fact, Arsenal... Arsenal's female football team was until last year called Arsenal Ladies. They changed their name. Mm. Now Arsenal. I think it's it's women, isn't it? I think they it's, changed it's, it. It's women, and and actually, um, for feminists, lady is a much more problematic issue than girl or girls. Yeah. For example, if you're helping somebody off a bus, an elderly woman who has really only understood lady as a term of courtesy and respect, what do you do? You're not going to say, I'm just going to help this woman off the bus because she will bristle at hearing herself be described as a woman. It's too harsh for her mm. from a particular social class and generation. But, um, you know, you can be very playful with, with girl, with older women, if you're familiar with them. So you could say to somebody very elderly, what are you girls doing here? Or and it's, it, you're and right. it would sound polite. It's definitely the generation thing. And it's a similar thing with the generations is the word love. I will find myself sometimes, especially out of London, with, you know, um, I'm originally from the Midlands, so if I'm there or somewhere up north, there'll be someone serving you in a cafe or whatever, and, you go, and she's old, it's older than me. I'm 47 now, and usually she's older than me, or even if she's younger than me, a bit younger than me. I say, oh, thanks very much, love. And so actually my partner now has started pick- picking me up on that. And my partner is in no way, at, well, she's the same age as me, so she's not generation snowflake mm. or anything. But she's, lots of words like this, we're starting to think about them. And I think you're absolutely right, Julie. Most times, most situations, especially with an older generation, girl, and in the same way as love, is fine these days. It's just, I'm starting to be wary of being an older bloke talking to women who are 20 years younger mm. than me. And sometimes they will have a problem with it. Well... A couple of um, blokes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. There's no equivalent to right. bloke. That's and, oh, problem. and by the way, if anyone calls me a guy, I will physically attack them. <laughs> yeah. so, well, I mentioned Jane Garvey in the piece. I put that in because of the, a mixed group. Of more of lots of different men and women. Oh, I can't Sometimes bear it. they'll but be called to, guys. I often use guys. I often say, "Oh, I can't bear hey, it." Guys. But it's an Americanism. I can't bear. Can I get? I often want to say to people in queues, "You mean may I have?" And you know, I'm a working class girl brought up in the northeast of England, We're which in is why. Simon <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is why I uh, don't mind terms of endearment such as love, or honey, or pet, because that's exactly how I grew up, and that was never an issue. But a couple of blokes came into my house to fit a TV. It's classic, isn't it? And I could tell the types there were immediately. Um, he, one of them, asked me where my husband was. Was my husband at work? And I said, I don't have a husband. And, oh, you're on your own, are you? No, but I live with my partner and she can fix the telly when she comes in because she's better at that than me. He went, oh, you're just a couple of girls living here. And also an insurance assessor came round and said, are you all just girls that live here then? Because he was trying to work out where the husband was who holds the keys to work out how we'd been broken into. Because <laughs> presumably in his world, uh, women don't have keys. They're just sort of escorted <laughs> by a chaperone into the house. So... It honestly depends on context, but I 
really, I know that you've asked me to do this because I'm a rabid feminist, <laughs> but I really don't have an issue with the term girls unless it's a sexist saying it or unless it's about women in the sex trade. Mark, do you think men are particularly sensitive about this in the sort of Me Too era? I mean, is this something you've started to think about more since all of that? Yeah, off? and I think sometimes it's a good thing. I think, you know, attitudes change, but... Uh, what's the correct word? A paradigm shift, or what? You know, they they happen gradually. The centre of what's acceptable and isn't gradually shifts, and that's the way it should happen. And language, I find this a fascinating thing rather than a serious political issue thing. It's just curious that there is no that, that thing. I keep coming back to. There's no female equivalent for bloke or lad. Mm. But I think absolutely, I agree with Julie about you can tell certainly when it's spoken rather than written. You can just tell from someone's demeanour. Some of the rudest people to me ever have been sales assistants in very expensive shops who do the can I help you sir and mm. you can tell there's absolute contempt in every word of their quite polite statement mm. whereas in fact I did a piece for the magazine a few years ago I've just remembered this about when I get a computer call centre now so when you ring up trying to get technical assistance with something I always want the rude ones because they just cut straight to what the issue is and they they're obviously not socially adept people who spent all their lives t as teenage boys in their bedroom playing games, but they know their way around a computer. <laughs> so ostensibly, they don't bother with any of the please, thank you, ridiculous scripts that all these people are given. And so they, you could say they were being rude, but actually they're the most polite and people you could imagine. Whereas the rude ones are the ones who go through all the formality, but underneath it there's contempt. Yeah, obviously language really matters, but context perhaps matters even more. As a feminist, if I achieve... My goal, I don't just mean me, I mean I'm clearly not the only feminist on the planet striving to end patriarchy all on my own, <laughs> although it does feel like that some days. But if we were to achieve our aims, it wouldn't. we wouldn't have to differentiate people immediately by that woman over there, that man over there, that girl, because we'd all just be people. And we'd have a biological uh, difference, you know, we, we, nothing would change uh, in that sense, but it wouldn't be the first marker. And I think that people do tend to want to romanticise the fact that they're with, for example, a group of women and patronise it. So they say, oh, I'm the only man with all girls, you know, having this, you know, event or at Christmas lunch. And, and that's when it starts to really irritate me. Yeah, you just, that mental image, you've just bizarrely put me in mind, and I hate to say it, but of Peter Stringfellow, who was, <laughs> who was the sort of guy who would be in that setting with any of his clubs when he was pictured with 20 of the dancers or whatever, and he would always use the word lady, wouldn't he? he, oh, was, he yeah, and yet he was a yeah. pimp. He was a pimp. Yeah. And he's dead, and I can say it. <laughs> <laughs> I said it to him on Radio 5 Live once, and he threatened to sue me, but he never did, so he's definitely a pimp. <laughs> Just finally, what about the word bloke? Because Julie's been using the word Mm. What do you make of I love it. And that, yeah, that's as we keep coming back to. That's that's the nice midway between Winston Churchill and boy. You know, that's you're acknowledging that they're a mature, you know, they're an adult male, but you're not talking about them. It's, you know, and any I think we've established, Julia, we're not the sort of feminist who would make this argument. There are some feminists, and I've seen them in print saying it, that, you know, man and woman, it should be exactly the same. And Joe Brand was sort of hinting towards that with the she's a woman. Not a, there are shades of grey in life, that, and language is all about shades of grey, and that's why, as we've been saying, we find it fascinating. And it's that curious gap of we need a male, a female equivalent of bloke. Had I been Joe Brand in that context, I would have said the same as yeah. her, because it was clear that what she wanted to do was slap him around the face yeah. for being who he was. And uh, and so that was a way that she could kind of... And she's presenting a TV show with an audience there. It got her a round of applause. And so, yeah, I can exactly. understand why she did it. Yeah, yeah, me too. Julia Mark, thank you. And that's all for this week. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. As ever, we always like to hear from you. 
And if you'd like to pick up this week's issue, you can read all of the pieces discussed, as well as Ben Schott's diary and why Julie Birchall has finally given up cocaine. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing.